All right, guys, let's open our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 12. And uh, coming off of the heels of uh, the seventh trumpet that we, we looked at last week, we get to dive into what I believe is uh, one of just the most uh, sensational, significant, one of the richest chapters in the entire Bible, uh, much less in the book of Revelation. I mean, you could spend a lot of time in this one chapter itself. There is so much going on here. I've, I'm going to do my best to probably cover Revelation 12 in two weeks. Um, I think we can probably get the most, maybe two, maybe three weeks. It just depends. But there's just so much, there's so much in here and so many good things that I think that this is why I love the book of Revelation. It, you know, it's not just about, you know, looking at the mechanics of how things may go down and how the the last days will uh, play out. It's not just about you know trying to understand the mechanics of it, guys. This is God's gospel message to His people, and uh, Revelation 12, as I said, is just so powerful, so dynamic, and I think you're going to see that this morning. So, just to recap briefly, where we have been up till now, we've covered uh, all of the seals, we've covered all of the trumpet judgments. And as, as we've looked at this from, a again, a prophetic pattern perspective, we've seen Jesus, the description of Jesus' triumphant return to earth to judge his enemies has happened at least twice. We've, we saw it in the sixth seal, in the, in the uh, tearing of the sixth seal, as Jesus returns, the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the, all the mountains of the earth are removed from their place and the people of the earth are hiding from the wrath of the Lamb and we, we see what it will be like during that time. And then last week we looked at the seventh trumpet, which again gives us all of this imagery about the last day when Jesus returns and the dead are raised and the destroyers of the earth are judged and uh, you know the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our, of our Lord and His Christ. And we, we see all of that in Revelation chapter 11 with the seventh trumpet. And then as God... Uh, does through this study, he, he again kind of gives us a division. He gives us a break from the action. And then he goes into Revelation chapter 12. And if you want to be honest, if I want to be honest, Revelation 12 to me is this the meta-narrative, the big picture, the, the overall great story of God. It's the story of the gospel. And it really gives us this 30,000 uh, you know, mile view looking down over God's redemptive plan from the very beginning and us being able to see that in the perspective of the end times and how it all applies to you and to me. Now, when we think about stories, when we think about the, t the best-selling movies in history, when we think about the best-selling books in modern history... It's interesting when you begin to look at the elements and the plot lines and the, and the, uh, you know, the characteristics of a good selling story, they really all share some of the very same basic characteristics. Let me give you a couple of them. Usually a good story has a great character development. So your characters are key, right? So typically you might have the damsel in distress, you know, the... The, 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 the lady who needs 
saving and protecting or maybe something has gone wrong and so you've got this whole picture of the damsel in distress or maybe it's a town or community that's that's needing someone to save them from the enemy because you typically have in a good story you have a nemesis right you have a an arch enemy the bad guy and everybody boo the bad guy and yay for the good guy and we we, we get caught up in these things but you know if you think about the greatest story some of the best movies that you think of some of the best movies that you love it's going to contain these very same elements. And then, of course, every good story, in my estimation, has the hero. And he comes to save the day just in the nick of time. And we all stand up and cheer. I'll never forget going to see Rocky IV. Was it Rocky IV with, when he fights the, the Russian? Yes. I mean, it was packed out and... We're in the small little theater in Senatobia, Mississippi, and I mean, you couldn't find a seat, and we're all in there, of course, and Rocky, you know, finally knocks him out, and that whole, you, popcorn's being thrown up into the ceiling, <laughs> the whole place erupted, I mean, it was, it was like a significant moment in my life, like Rocky IV, and I'll never forget that, you know, why? Because we were so happy that he knocked out the bad guy, right, during the Cold War, and Russia, and America, and all that kind of stuff, and I mean, those are great stories, but my question is, is why are those stories and movies so good? It's only because they are a shadow or a picture of a greater what? Of a greater story. God put something in the human existence, in the human heart, that we all understand what a good story really is. Uh, one of my favorite authors, I haven't read, read many of his books lately, but it's a man by the name of John Eldridge. He wrote uh, Wild at Heart, and he wrote Epic, and it's just really good books, especially for men, just a kind of biblical manhood. But listen to what he said. Let's see if I can quote John Eldridge. He said, Every story, great and small, shares the same essential structure because every story we tell borrows its power from a bigger story a story that is woven into the fabric of our being. We live in a far more dramatic, far more dangerous story than we could have ever imagined. Things are not what they seem. We are at war, and you have a critical, crucial role to play. And when we begin to see that our story is part of a what? Bigger story, it gives such purpose and significance to our life. That human beings are on the stage of the dramatic stage of history. And everything that we're about to read in Revelation chapter 12 is it really is centered around humanity. Lest we forget, Jesus did not become an angel. He permanently took on what? Flesh. Did you know Jesus permanently took on flesh? Do you know when Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, he didn't lose his human body? That means right now, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, is a what? He's a man. He's part of humanity. That should tell you something. That means humanity matters. Amen. There's something important about us as being made in the image of God. And guys, when we begin to look at this beautiful, grand, great story that is told to us through Scripture, that's what makes Revelation 12 come alive to me. And again, there's no way I could possibly cover the whole thing in one sitting. So we're just going to really focus in today on one aspect of this great story. And that's the story of the damsel in distress, the woman in the wilderness. You're going to see how that is directly connected to you and me today. So let's look at Revelation 12. 
And let's just, I'm going to read the first six verses now. We'll, we'll kind of we'll cherry pick some of the other verses as we go on because, again, this has so much going on. But let's look at this interesting story, the greatest story that has ever been told, that we're a part of. It says, And then there is a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. She says, a damsel in distress. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Oh, there's the nemesis. There's the arch enemy. Seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, seven crowns. And his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. But she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God which she's to be nourished for 1,200 in 60 days. Now, what's interesting about this passage, again, you could go in so many different directions. But the first thing is I want to show you is that this story, this great story, was first written where? In the stars. Woo, really? You ever heard of the Maseroth? Let me put That's a biblical term. Let me give you a modern term, the zodiac. You open up your newspaper and you read your daily what? I hope you don't. <laughs> but see, horoscopes today are nothing more than a perversion. We'll see that in a second. They're nothing more than a satanic, demonic perversion of a true story that, yes, God did write in the stars. It's fascinating. Let me share with this. This, this is interesting because you see that there's this great sign in heaven and you see a, a woman clothed with the sun and she's got 12 stars in the crown and her feet are on the moon and, and you see this great dragon and all this stuff's happening where? In heaven, in the, in the stars, okay? These are signs above that we can look at and there is a, uh, a historical connection to this story that we can learn from has been written in the stars. I want to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to introduce you to it. We, we've talked a little bit about this. Matter of fact, back around Christmas of last year, remember when we had the eclipse and the, uh, um, the elliptical in the sky and the sun and the star Saturn and Jupiter, what do you call it, a conjunction? Uh, we talked a little bit about this, but I want to just kind of refresh your memory uh, real quick about what this means. Now, if you think in Genesis 1, all the way back at the beginning... The Lord tells us the purpose of the sun, moon, and the stars. He says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, okay, and seasons. So not only are they to be signs, visible signs for us to see and discern, but they're also for seasons. That's the word moedim, or the appointed times. The appointed feast of the Lord, actually, is what it literally means, okay? And so we know the Lord created the sun, moon, and stars to display His glory, but also it was to give us these Signs In Job 38, look at what it says. One of the oldest books that we think of that has been recorded in the Bible is the book of Job. He says, the Lord is talking to Job in this passage. In Job 38, the Lord finally responds to Job. And look at what he says. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? 
What are we talking about? Constellations. These have their origin in old ancient times. Can you lead forth the Maseroth? That's a Hebrew word for the zodiac. Okay? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Can you guide the bear? Again, another constellation with its children. Do you not know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Remember when Jesus was born, the Magi from the east, they're observing the what? The stars. They're paying attention to the, to the celestial objects in the sky, learning how to discern those signs. And that is what triggered their recognition of the Messiah being born. They knew something that other people didn't know. Look at what it says. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and it, we have come to worship him. Very, very interesting. This is an ancient, ancient form of communication that the Lord has given us. So what is the real meaning of the zodiac? Now, if you don't know a whole lot about the zodiac, I'm not going to labor your time here. But just remember... That the Zodiac, again, is an ancient idea that there is a story written where? In the stars. And it's primarily surrounded by 12 distinct signs. And here's what's interesting about the Zodiac. It's like the flood story. You can go to any ancient civilization on the earth and they have a what? A flood story. It's like the story of the Nephilim or the giants. You go to any ancient civilization on the earth and they have story of, of giants that used to live on the earth. And it's like the Zodiac. You go to any ancient civilization on the earth, from China to South America to you know, Persia, wherever it is, and they all have an understanding of the Zodiac. And here's what's fascinating when you begin to investigate that. Every single Zodiac, all the signs and the representation of the signs and the meaning of the signs, they're universally the same thing. Which should tell us something. That came from a common point of origin. I believe what happened is that this story that was written in the stars was first known by Adam and his generation and the godly offspring of Adam. Noah and his family knew it. And then after the flood, we see the Tower of Babel. Humanity still had this story. They, had, they knew what the, the story of the, the signs of the zodiac really meant. The true story, again, it's been perverted now, but the true story and then after the Tower of Babel and then mankind was dispersed all over the earth, okay, they took that story with them. So that the universal uh, meaning of these signs, these 12 different signs on the zodiac, they all are the same in every culture and every civilization around the world. Now, again, let me state clearly, in most countries, if not all, these signs have been corrupted. They have been perverted. And they were used by ancient cultures and civilizations to work sorcery and divination. And eventually in our day, we have them only in the form of astrology, which is of the devil. You hear me, right? So don't read. Your horoscopes are not divinely inspired. Those things are demonically inspired. I, I discourage any Christian from dabbling in horoscopes because those are not the true pictures of what God originally intended. But if you think about some of the signs and their universal meaning dating back to the ancient times, think about, you know who the, the very first sign on the ecliptic when you look at the zodiac is? It's Virgo. Do y'all know what Virgo is? She's the virgin. She's the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet. 
Oh, you know what else we find in the Zodiac? We find somebody called Scorpio. He's the enemy, the serpent. We find Hydra, who is the seven-headed what? Dragon. Didn't we just read something about a dragon with seven heads? That was written in the stars long before John ever penned the book of Revelation. Oh, guess who else we have in the Zodiac? Leo. Anybody know who that is? The lion. The one who's coming to conquer and stomp the head of the dragon. You see what I'm saying? So if you can go chase that down, I'm going to give you one resource. If if you're interested in learning more about this, D. James Kennedy. He's, 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 He's passed away. He was a Presbyterian minister. I don't agree with everything DJ's committee ever said. He was a solid gospel preacher. He was the one that developed EE. Who's ever been part of Evangelism Explosion? EE. That's D. James Kennedy. He wrote a book, The Real Meaning of the Zodiac, and he goes into detail about every single sign and the different constellations and things that are associated with it. And it is fascinating because when you read it, guess what it does? It tells the story of the gospel. It literally does. Fascinating. And so that's part of what we have here in Revelation 12. Again, that could be a whole study in and of itself. But look at Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth. How does a star speak? Hmm. Night after night they reveal knowledge. There, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Keep that in mind. The sun is like a what? A bridegroom. Like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Scientists used to say, you know, the Bible's ignorant because they say that the sun is circulating around the earth. That's not what that passage says. It says the sun has its own course and its own circuit. Guess what we know now about the solar system? The sun is constantly what? It's moving. Did you know that? Our solar system is not sitting still. The whole thing is what? Moving and we're just moving around it. And it's going like this through space. And biblical authors knew this long before we had modern-day science to be able to detect these things. This is not an argument for the sun traveling around the earth. This is telling us that the sun is on its own circuit around our galaxy. It's fascinating stuff. But again, in Romans 10, Paul uses that verse, and look at what he says. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, but I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So Paul even associates Psalm 19 and this gospel story written in the stars with the spoken word and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we now have been given to take to all of the earth. That's in one way, I believe, why man is without excuse. And again, we could could get more and more into detail about that. But this is fascinating to me when we begin to look at Revelation Chapter 12. D. James Kennedy, if you're interested in that, go chase it down. Now let's look at the cast of characters real quick. Because in Revelation 12, again, every good story has good character development. And when we look at Revelation 12, it's talking in symbolic language. And I've told you guys that every symbol in Scripture represents a literal fulfillment. Okay? Just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not real. 
So when we look at the cast of characters and we kind of decode, I'm going to help you out here. Let me give you the main characters in Revelation chapter 12 so that you can kind of start reading the book with that code, you know, like the old decoder ring that you would find in your cereal box, right? Then you could get on the back and decode the, the puzzle. That's kind of what's, what we have here. The woman, as we're going to see, is Israel. But it's also equivalent to God's virgin bride. And we'll see that more here in just a minute. The 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel, the crown in her head. I believe that's symbolic of her nature as being the mother of uh, ancient Israel. The red dragon, we're clearly told, is who? That's the devil. He's our enemy. He has seven heads and ten, ten horns. Those are seven kingdoms and ten kings. We'll get into that later on. The stars mentioned in this book, in this chapter, are angelic beings. Okay. We have a male child who ends up being the hero of the story, but he's the seed of the woman. We also know him as Jesus. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's who he is. We have this great eagle. We'll get into that maybe, maybe next week. That's, that's an angelic being. We've talked about that a little bit. There's talked about a flood coming out of the mouth of the, of the dragon. I think that that's his army. I could, I'll develop that later. He sends an army against the woman. And then you have the rest of the woman's offspring, which are Christian witnesses. Okay, so that's kind of how you can decode this chapter when you're reading it and you don't let the, the symbols confuse you because every symbol has a meaning. Now today I want to talk to you about the sign of the woman. We find the original pattern for this picture in the book of Genesis. Now let's recap. Who does John see in heaven? He sees a woman. Okay. Again, Virgo. Think, in, think of Virgo, the virgin. But this is a woman. She's clothed with the sun. She's got the moon at her feet. She's got 12 stars in her, in her crown. Okay. Now the Bible tells us who the woman is, the original fulfillment there is an expansion of this, but this is the original one. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 37 who the woman is. This comes from one of Joseph's dreams. Y'all remember this? Joseph was given the ability to dream, to interpret dreams. And this is one of the reasons why his brothers were so jealous of him and hated him. In Genesis 37, look at what happens. Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers... That was probably his first mistake, right? Hey, guys, you won't believe what I dreamed last night. They really didn't want to hear this. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, how many brothers did Joseph have? 11. So that makes him the what? So we got 12 stars in this passage, right? Well, how do we know that's the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars represent Jacob, his wife, and the 12 princes or the 12 sons of Israel? Look at what it says. But when he told it to his father, now Jacob is hearing the, the dream, and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob interprets the dream. Who's the sun? Jacob. Who's the moon? It's Rachel. She was Jacob's wife who gave birth to Joseph. And then who are the 12 stars? 
Jacob's sons. Who is Jacob? What was his name changed to? So now we have a picture. This woman is Israel. Okay? Israel. And you look at what it says. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now we know this eventually came true in Egypt, and we don't have time to go down that path. But this gives us the interpretation, initial interpretation of this vision. But here's where I want to go with it. I want to talk about the woman in the wilderness. Israel, a bride in the wilderness. Twice in this passage, it, ta- it tells us that this woman flees where? To the wilderness. Now, now listen, to, we, we live in Mississippi, we live in Tennessee, we live in the deep south. When we think wilderness, we think about trees. We think about going to the forest like Robin Hood, right? Or Rip, Little Red Riding Hood, right? Going to the forest and that's the wilderness. No, when the Bible speaks of the wilderness, the Bible's talking about what? The desert. I, I never really fully grasped that until I was able to go to Israel. And you drive around Israel outside of Jericho and you see where Jesus was taken into the wilderness. And guys, when I say there's not a green plant there, I'm telling you there is nothing green in that whole area. It is all rock and sand and dry desert. That's it. That is the wilderness. And this great story, this great story of the greatest story that has ever been told, listen to me, it begins and it ends where? In the wilderness. Now let's talk wilderness real quick because this, this is where I think you and me are going to get a lot out of this. What does the wilderness represent? Let's think about it for just a second. If you were out in the desert, well, obviously it's dry. Can't find any what? No water. How many of you are in that dry season right now? You just... You just, you just want to seek the Lord. You, you, you want to feel revived. You want to feel refreshed. And yet you just are stuck in this season of spiritual dryness. And you just, you just need some water to quench your thirst, but you, just, you don't know where to find it. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to begin. What else do we see about the wilderness? It's fruitless. As I said, you go to the wilderness, you don't see, you barely see a shrub, you barely see a bush, and I guarantee you, you won't find any food, any fruit to eat. Any of you struggling with that season right now? You're not bearing any fruit? We, we've all gone through this season of being where? In the desert. The wilderness is an empty place. It's desolate. That means that it's a place of isolation. Anybody feel isolated right now? Well, I tell you what, whoever is working behind the scenes has done a great job of keeping us what? Isolated from one another. Let's lock ourselves in our house. Let's don't go, we can't go visit our grandparents in the hospital. For a while, you can't go to church, you can't be around your church family. Let's keep the kids home and separated from each other. Let's keep them what? In the wilderness. Let's keep them isolated and vulnerable, alone. The wilderness is a dangerous place. You don't have a whole lot of protection in the wilderness. Not only is it dangerous because of the elements, 
You got heat and you got wild beasts that could be out there after you. Uh, you know, the, the wilderness was often associated with demonic spirits. You know, the dry places, the, the desolate places, demonic. There's a lot of spiritual attack in the wilderness. If you're there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're vulnerable in the wilderness. You're restless in the wilderness. You're not going to sleep good in the desert. You're not going to be at peace. You're not going to be at rest. How many of you right now are restless? And let's just be honest. It's dirty in the wilderness. You can't get clean. You're dusty. You're dirty. You're filthy. You see, guys, this is a true symbolic representation of how you and I, many of us, are either in the wilderness or we've been in the wilderness for quite some time, or we may be heading into the wilderness, or we might be coming out of the wilderness. But I think we all need to recognize, this is the biggest thing I want you to take away from, I'll just go ahead and tell you, but this is the place where God meets us. Amen. He meets us in the desert. Right. And that's the story of the woman in the desert. Look at what it says in Revelation 12. Again, this dragon pursues the woman who's given birth to the male child. And the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she's going to be nourished and cared for and provided for for three and a half years. But to understand what this whole passage is talking about, we got to go back to the beginning we got to go back to the Exodus. The first thing that you can learn today is that the Lord first, listen to me, this is so important from this point on, guys, you're going to see how important this is. He betrothed himself. Now, that's a word we don't use quite often in our culture anymore. But when you see everybody doing their stage propped in, uh, proposal pictures on Facebook, that's a modern day representation of a what? A betrothal. I'm giving you this ring so you and I now are exclusive, right? We're in this together. We're, we're planning on going to get married. We're not married yet, but you better stay faithful to me and I'm going to stay faithful to you because we're going to get what? It may be six months, it may be a year, but we're betrothed. And see, in Jewish culture, in, Israel, in Israelite culture, this was an even more binding. It was a contractual agreement. When a, when a man uh, was given to, a woman was given to a man, they were in contractually bound with each other. In other words, they were just as good as married. They even began to make plans to, to get their house together, to get their, their, their place, their uh, home in order. But the, married, the marriage just hasn't been consummated yet. Okay. Well, God speaks to Israel in the same language as being married to them. Even today, what do we say? The church is the what? Bride of Christ. We're betrothed to Jesus. This started in the wilderness. The Lord first betrothed himself in covenant relationship to the people of Israel. Where? In the wilderness of Mount Sinai. I don't have to go back through the Exodus story, but remember God brings Israel out of the, uh, Egypt with mighty hand and outstretched arm. He drowns Pharaoh and his army in the sea. And he leads this new nation, his new people, into the wilderness to get married. This is where they're going to be betrothed one to another. Exodus 6. 
I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and you and I will be your God. Let me translate for you. I'm going to take you to be my wife and I'm going to be your husband. The language in the Exodus and the language at the covenant of Mount Sinai is all marriage language. That's what it is. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from Egypt. So here in Exodus 19, they finally get to the base of the mountain there in Mount Sinai. It says on that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They were encamped in the wilderness, guys. This is a desert place. He says, this is what you want to say to Israel. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant... You will be my treasured possession. If you're a husband out there and you love your wife, she, you think of her as your what? Your most treasured earthly possession. Right? That's how deep and desirable and cherished you are with your marriage relationship. He says, you're going to be my most treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart. These are the words you shall speak. To Israel, which leads us now to the Ten Commandments. Do you know what the Ten Commandments are? Among other things, the moral standard of God's people. But do you know what the Ten Commandments are? Marriage vows. That's what they are. You don't believe me? The Lord is here on Sinai. The people are here. Moses is in, he's the intermediary. He's the mediator. The Lord gives him the Ten Commandments. What's the very first one? Can't have nobody else. Don't go running around on me. We're exclusive. You shall have no other God but me. Isn't that what we do at a marriage ceremony? Oh, number two, don't even try to make anything to look like me and go get, get, get led astray to go follow anything else because... I am your God and you will be my people. Don't even, don't even go down that road to try to create some created idol to worship. Again, because we're exclusive. Number three. You shall not take my what? What happens when a bride gets married to her husband? She takes on his name. Don't go running around giving my name, giving me a what? A bad Name, because now you have my last name. I'm the Lord. I'm your God. You are my people. Don't take my name in vain. In other words, don't get married to me and take this covenant lightly. Amen. Because now you and I, we're connected forever. You represent me, I represent you. Just like a what? Marriage covenant. Oh, and by the way, commandment number four, we got a date night every week. Remember the what? Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy. Why? The Lord said at least one day a week we need to get together, spend quality time with each other, catch up on what's going on. You worship me, you honor me, we refresh and we rejoice and we celebrate and worship and that's what the Sabbath day is all. How many of you husbands and wives out there got a date night? It's important. Got to keep the marriage fresh, right? You got to keep dating your wife. That's what the Sabbath day is all about. Lord said, hey, I'm setting one day a week apart. Six days, you go do your work, that's fine. But one day a week, just come back and spend what? Just give me a little time. Amen. That's what the Sabbath day is all about. See, guys, what happened at Mount Sinai was that it was a marriage covenant, and they took their marriage vows seriously. 
Well, I say they would because unfortunately, Israel from the very start, guys, and this is, the, again, the story that I'm telling you today is that she proved, unfortunately, to be an adulterous wife from the very what? And because of her unfaithfulness to her God, she suffered severe consequences, including exile and eventually estrangement from her husband. Look at what happened in Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain. The people, he's up there 40 days. The people start to get antsy. Aaron, what's going on? Where's Moses? You know what? Maybe he left us. Maybe he just, he cut out on us, man. We need a God. Oh, sure. Let's, let's make ourselves a what? A golden calf. And the Lord tells Moses, paraphrase, hey, Moses, uh, you better go down there and check on my wife because she's already running around on me. On their marriage day, didn't waste any time. Think about that for a second. This is their marriage day, their betrothal ceremony. And she's already cheating, worshiping another guy. And the Lord was like, I'm just going to go ahead and just kill them all, and I'll start over with you, Moses. And he's like, no, 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 Lord, please keep, keep faithful to your covenant, the promise you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know the whole story. But that's what happened. And it says the people, after they worshiped the golden calf, they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That's a very PG way of saying they were having an orgy. I'm just going to be honest with you. This was a terrible scene. They're worshiping a false god, a golden calf. They're eating and drinking, and they're committing all types of sexual immorality right there in the face of God at the mountain on their marriage day. Boy, that didn't start off too good, did it? And you can go on and read that story next to this 32. But the Lord is, he's like, man, this is some stiff-necked people. That's the, that's the understated, understatement of the, of the century, right? Hosea 2. As we see the, the history, I don't have time to get into the whole history of Israel, but just stay with me, okay? Uh, it, by the time of the prophet Hosea, he's telling Hosea, plead with your mother Israel, plead for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. She, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day when she was born. When was she born? At Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Jeremiah 3. Oh, what she did, that faithless one Israel, she went up on every high hill under every green tree, and there played the whore, the harlot. And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And this treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw all of the adulteries that her faithless one Israel, and I had sent her away with a decree of Divorce. Did you know that? The Lord finally said, I've been faithful to you for about 300-something years, and you've been cheating on me this whole time, and I thought, surely you're going to come back to me eventually. And finally he just said, what? I'm done. Jeremiah 3. So now let's talk about the bridegroom. Because to understand the marriage covenant and the betrothal on Mount Sinai, we got to understand what was happening on that day. See, Jesus, when he came, he referred to himself as who? The bridegroom. Now, we read that in the New Testament. And we're like, well, that, yeah, he's just like, he's giving us symbol, symbolic language. Do you know what a, a Jew of first century Jew would have immediately recognized when Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom? They would have thought about what? 
Exodus and Mount Sinai. Because who came down on the mountain? God did. And he's called the husband of Israel. You know what Jesus is saying when he says he's the bridegroom? I was the one that came down on the mountain. I was the one that wrote the Ten Commandments, the marriage vows, with my very what? Finger. I was the one that gave Moses the rock, the, the stone tablets. That was me. I was the one who entered into this marriage covenant with the people of Israel. And Jesus is the bridegroom God. And here's the beautiful thing. He was willing to give his very life for his bride in order to bring her into a new and better covenant. Look at what he says in Matthew 9 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Jesus is referring to himself. Matthew 22, the king gave a great wedding feast for his son. Again, referring to himself as the bridegroom. And of course, we know in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, guys, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into the, the, the details about what was happening, but I want to share this with you because this is fascinating to me, and you, you will understand this passage better if, I, if you understand this. Look at Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? A married woman is bound to, to, by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband, what, dies, she's released. From the law of marriage, the law of marriage. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's what? Free. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Let me translate for you. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been what? Raised from the dead. All right, summarize real quick because I'm running out of time. Deuteronomy 24 says that if a woman is put away for her unfaithfulness and, and is divorced from her husband, even if that man dies, she can't go back and marry her what? Her husband. It was forbidden. Okay? Now, here's the thing that happened. Israel, unfaithful Israel, was put away by God, estranged. And there was no way for her to remarry her husband unless the husband had to what? Die. And when the husband died, she's set free. She's released from that old contract. And then, oh, by the way, that same husband did what? Was resurrected from the dead. Now to remarry. Legally speaking, Jesus had to die in order to break that old contract, that old marriage covenant, and then as he was resurrected in power and glory in the new covenant, now we can remarry him in that sense, enter into a new covenant with him because he broke the law of marriage through his death. This was a fascinating thing. This is a whole other aspect of the new covenant that many of us miss because we don't know the whole story of God. And again, I could tell you all of this, but it says Jesus will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that he made with their fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The only way the Lord could enter into a new covenant with his people is that he had to die. Then he was raised again. Fascinating. So God used Israel's unbelief for the ultimate blessing of the Gentiles 
and extended salvation to all nations through faith in Jesus. Now listen. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God turned around and instead of making that at the exclusion of all nations, He turned around and made that to what? Bless all nations. Romans 11. Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, guys, remember, what did I tell you? How did this story begin? Israel, the ethnic people of Israel in the wilderness, they have been traditionally, historically unfaithful to God. Right now, there are still many ethnic Israelites, Jewish people, if you want to use that word, in the world today. Most of them do not believe in Messiah. You understand that, right? They're still in a, in a place of hardness. They're still in a place of unbelief. So God took a story in the wilderness... Now, because of their unfaithfulness, he has extended salvation to all nations. And that's what the bride of Christ is all about. We are the bride. We are the collective body of Christ that believes in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. But the story's not over yet. Because just like Romans 11 tells us, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has what? Come in. And when the fullness of the nations comes into God's bride, he's going to turn his attention back to who? And guess where he's going to meet them again? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. God promised to preserve a believing remnant from ethnic Israel to the very end and show her grace in the wilderness where it all first began. Guys, do y'all understand how amazing this story is? This is fascinating to me. Look at what it says in Romans 11. God has the power to graft them in again. You see, they, they were cut off because of their unbelief, but God's going to bring them back into the body once again near the end. Look at what it says. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And it's going to begin in, it's going to end in the wilderness where it first began. Jesus told those who are, who are living in Judea what happens when they see the abomination of desolation. They need to what? Flee where? The to the wilderness. There will be a remnant of people from Israel who will see the abomination of desolation. They're going to flee to the wilderness, probably with some supernatural help, and that God's going to take them there for three and a half years where He's going to nurse them and protect them and supernaturally provide for them. Hosea 2, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as it was when she came out of the land of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will be called my husband. No longer will you be called my Baal. Hosea 2, and I will betroth you to me forever and betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and you will know the Lord. Where is this going to happen? In the wilderness. It's going to take place again. That this remnant from Israel that we call the bride, that we call the woman, clothed in the sun, she's going to be allured back into the wilderness for three and a half years, and God's going to do supernatural things there with her, but it's going to be a time of testing, and it's going to be a time of her wooing her back and showing her grace so that they would enter into a new relationship together. 
Look at what it says in Ezekiel 20. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, I will enter into judgment with you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You will return to me through Messiah, through Jesus, and we will be married once again. We will be betrothed once again. Jeremiah 31, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people, and the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You know what the greatest story is? It's a love story. That's what this whole story is about. And I've continued my faithfulness to you, and again I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. And at the end, when Jesus returns, and finally all of his people, both Jew and Gentile, are brought back to him through this process, that is when we celebrate the what? That's the marriage supper. You see, guys, our marriage with the Lord has not yet been consummated, if you want to put it that way. But it will be when Jesus returns, that's when we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of God's people from all the nations, including Israel, we are going to be one bride, one body, and we will be brought together to celebrate and feast and celebrate this beautiful marriage supper with the Lord in the New Jerusalem when Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns from Zion. Amen. Fascinating. Isaiah 62. This is when Jesus returns. I'm going to finish here, guys. You will no longer be termed forsaken, and you shall no more be termed desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Guys, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Rejoice and exult, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What do we see the virgin in Revelation 12? She's covered with the sun. She's clothed with what? The sun. She's clothed with the righteousness of the bridegroom. Fascinating. So guys, I'm going to ask our praise team to come back up. Look at Revelation 21 as we close out. I saw a new heaven and a new earth where the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. They're gonna, we're going to be his bride. And God will be with them as their God. You see, guys, the reason this is so very important to the overall picture of the greatest story ever told is because this is God's love story. And if we learn anything from this story, anything, you see, we as Gentile Christians, I'm going to be honest with you, we're proud. We're arrogant. 
We read about Israel and her unfaithfulness and we're like, man, I would never be like her. Look at the state of the church today. The church today is full of idolatry, worldliness, sexual immorality, false doctrine. I mean, we, we are running around chasing so many other things and not being faithful to who? We're nothing, we're, we're, we're just like Israel. We're not anything different. The church needs to be purified. But here's the good news. I want to share the good news with you before we close. We are unfaithful. No, that's the bad news. We are unfaithful. But He, He is faithful. Amen. Where would we be without a faithful God? Lost in the wilderness. But wherever you may be right now, you may be in a season of sin that's kept you isolated, dry, vulnerable. You may be there right now, guys. Listen to me. You don't have to stay in the wilderness. Who is willing to meet you there? God is. Jesus Christ, our bridegroom God, is willing to come to us right where we are in the place of our most vulnerable, dirty, sinful, isolated place. And He wants to bring us out Amen. and lead us by streams of living water so that we can be refreshed and restore our soul. Thank you, Jesus. That's the kind of a bridegroom God that we have. He is faithful. He will never deny Himself. He is always going to be faithful. To the very end. Guys, whatever sin that you're struggling with today, I'm calling, I'm asking you right now, don't stay there. Use this next song to do whatever you got to do to let God search your heart and please plead with Him. Ask Him to meet you right where you are, to restore you, to forgive you, to bring you back, and to lead you to places of fruitfulness and restoration and refreshment. We don't have to stay in a season of dryness. Amen. You don't have to stay there. I've been there. I've been there really, honestly, I've been there pretty much recently. Just to be, have a little confession time as a pastor. I've been, I've been in a little spiritual dry spell. And I know if I'm struggling with it, then I think you're, many of you may be struggling with it too. Let today be the end of that. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, thank you for being so faithful that you were willing to come and lay your life down to cancel that old marriage covenant so that then you could be gloriously resurrected into the newness of life and we could marry you. We could, we could enter into new covenant with you, a better covenant one, one where you have written your law upon our hearts and you have pushed your spirit inside of us. What, a, what an amazing gift that we have, God, and that you will remain faithful to the very end, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Forgive us, Lord, of putting everything before you, everything else under the sun before you. Forgive us of idolatry and spiritual unfaithfulness to you, God. Thank you for your mercy and your, your forgiveness and your, your patience with us, O oh Lord. Move in our hearts even now, Lord, at this time. If there's anybody in this room today, Lord, that, that needs to feel that, that perfect love that you have demonstrated, Lord. If anybody in here needs to feel that forgiveness that only you can give, Lord, please bring us out of the desert places. And lead us by those streams of living water where we will bear much fruit for your kingdom. 
I pray all this, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This place.